The Moviegoer's Guide to the Future, based on the book Films from the Future, The Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies, and read by the author Andrew Maynard. That's me, by the way. Chapter 12, The Day After Tomorrow. In July 2017, a massive chunk of ice broke off the Larsen Sea ice shelf in Antarctica. The resulting tabular iceberg covered around 2,200 square miles around the area of Delaware in a tad smaller than the British county of Norfolk, and was one of the largest icebergs in recorded history to break off the continent. The event grabbed the attention of the media around the world and was framed as yet another indication of the mounting impacts of human activity-driven climate change. Thirteen years earlier, the climate disaster movie The Day After Tomorrow opened with a block of ice splitting off another of the Antarctic ice shelves, in this case the Larsen B shelf. At the time, the sheer size of this make-believe tabular berg was mind-boggling enough to astound and shock moviegoers. But the movie berg ended up being rather smaller than the 2017 one, coming in at a mere 1,212 square miles. Looking back, it's sobering to realise that what was considered shockingly unimaginable in 2004 had become a pale reflection of reality in 2017. Human-caused climate change is perhaps the biggest challenge of our generation. As a species, we've reached the point where our collective actions have a profound and lasting effect on our planet. Yet we're struggling to even acknowledge the magnitude of the issues we face as a result, never mind agree on effective ways forward. This is a deeply social and political issue, and one that will only make progress toward addressing through socially and politically oriented action. Yet underlying our changing climate and how we handle it, is technology. It's the technological innovations of the Industrial Revolution and what came after that helped get us here in the first place. It's technological and scientific advances in climate modeling and data collection and processing that have revealed just how big the challenge is that we're facing. It's our continued addiction to our technology-enhanced and energy-intensive lifestyles that continues to drive climate change. And its breakthroughs in areas like renewable energy, carbon capture and storage, and solar radiation management that are helping open up ways toward curbing the worst impacts of climate change. At this point, I should be upfront and admit that the day after tomorrow barely touches on any of these technologies. This is a movie that uses Hollywood hyperbole to try to shock its audience into thinking more seriously about the impacts of catastrophic climate change. But it does this through human stories and an improbable but nevertheless dramatic climactic tipping point. Nevertheless, it is a movie that reveals intriguing insights into the relationship between technology, society and climate. Here, I need to add a personal note before we get further into this chapter. Climate change is a contentious and polarising issue. When it comes to human-driven global warming, most people have an opinion on what is and what is not happening, what is and is not relevant and important, and what people should and should not be doing about it. Not to beat about the bush, it's a minefield of a topic to write about, and one for which, no matter what I wrote, I'd end up rubbing someone up the wrong way. And yet this is not an excuse not to write about climate change. Given this challenge, this chapter focuses on a relatively narrow aspect of our relationship with the planet we live on and how technology plays into this. As a result, it does not contain a comprehensive survey of climate science. It doesn't analyse and summarise climate change mitigation options. It doesn't even unpack the growing field of sustainable technologies. These are all tremendously important areas, and if you're interested in them, there are volumes upon volumes written about each of them that you can explore further. Rather, using the day after tomorrow as a starting point, the chapter explores what it means to live on a dynamic planet where there is a deep and complex relationship between living systems and the world they inhabit, and what this means not only for the technologies that unintentionally impact our climate, but also for those that are intentionally designed to do so. 
The day after tomorrow opens in Antarctica, with the movie's hero Jack Hall and his colleagues drilling out ice cores on the Larsen B ice shelf, just as a Rhode Island-sized chunk of ice breaks away from it. This somewhat convenient coincidence leads to hearings that are presided over by the US Vice President. And this is where we learn that Jack is something of a maverick scientist and the Vice President a cynical climate change denier. It quickly transpires that the ice shelf collapse is a prelude to a much more dramatic series of events. Water from the melting berg disrupts critical ocean currents, and this, in turn, triggers a rapid and catastrophic shift in global climate. A series of devastating megastorms rings the changes between the world as we know it and a radically altered world of the future. In this emerging new world, the global north, including many of the world's most affluent countries, is plunged into a new ice age. It's these catastrophic megastorms that create the disaster backdrop for the movie, including a dramatic but make-believe type of storm that's capable of pulling down super-cooled air from the upper atmosphere and, quite literally, freezing people solid who are caught in the downdraft. As a paleoclimatologist, Jack studies changes in the Earth's climate throughout its history. His research has unearthed disturbing evidence of rapid climate shifts in the Earth's past that are linked to disrupted ocean currents. And because he's a brash Hollywood scientist, he doesn't hesitate to make a pain of himself by telling people that they need to act now before the same sort of catastrophic event happens all over again. This turns out to be a bit of a tough sell, though, as Jack reckons that it could be hundreds of years or so before the really bad stuff starts to happen. But because of the water pouring into the ocean from the disintegrating Larsen B ice shelf, Jack's predictions begin to play out faster than anticipated. Much faster. As the planet's climate becomes increasingly unstable, it turns out that Jack's computer model is the only one around that's capable of predicting what's going on. As he plugs the numbers in and cranks the handle, it becomes increasingly clear that the world is on the brink of a catastrophic change in climate that's only days away. Even worse, his model predicts that the only way to protect as many US citizens as possible is to move people in the lower latitude states as far south as possible and leave everyone above a no-hope latitude to the mercy of the elements. The only problem is Jack's son Sam is currently stuck in New York, which is a long way above this no-hope line. Predictably, because this is a Hollywood disaster movie, Jack decides to travel to New York City and rescue his son, despite knowing that he'll be facing some incredibly tough conditions. And in true joined-at-the-hip buddy movie style, his two research partners join him. On the way, Jack and his team, together with his son Sam, who's holed up in the New York Public Library with his girlfriend and a handful of others burning books to stay alive, face deadly, flesh-freezing downdrafts from one of the megastorms. Thankfully, though, they evade the killer air and are eventually reunited. Meanwhile, there's a flood of US refugees, including the remnants of the US government, crossing the border to Mexico. Yet before he can evacuate from DC, the US president is killed in ever-worsening storms. As the climate change-denying vice president takes his place, now ensconced in Mexico, he faces an unprecedented human and environmental disaster. And as he comes to terms with the consequences of human disregard for our fragile environment, he emerges a humbler but wiser leader. As the storms clear, we see a remade Earth with snow and ice covering much of the northern and southern hemispheres, and a thin band of warmer land sandwiched in between. What were previously thought of as developing economies are now the ones calling the shots, and what's left of humanity faces the challenge of building a new future and hopefully a more thoughtful and responsible one. As the movie draws to a close, we begin to see groups of survivors emerging from the ice-encased buildings of New York City, including Jake and Sam. Humanity has suffered a blow, but it's far from beaten. The Day After Tomorrow leaves viewers with a clear warning that if we continue to be disdainful of how we treat the environment, there could be potentially catastrophic consequences. But the overall message of the film is one of the indomitable spirit of humanity overcoming even the most extreme of catastrophes. Watching the remnants of society start to work together, we just know that whatever happens, we will survive as a species. 
This narrative admittedly makes the climate change messaging of the movie somewhat ambivalent. The film certainly tries to warn viewers about the consequences of actions that lead to global warming, but it also conveys a message of hope that even if we make a mess of things, we can use our grit and ingenuity to find a way out. In other words, climate change is a problem, but it's not the end of the world. To confuse things further, this is a movie about global warming that ends up with a frozen planet. At first blush, it's probably not the message you'd go for if you were out to convince someone that greenhouse gas emissions are leading to catastrophic planetary heating. Yet it does give the movie a twist that I must confess I rather like. It suggests that the consequences of human-driven climate change are not necessarily predictable or intuitive. Yes, the Earth's climate as a whole is warming, but because it's also complex and fickle, this warming won't necessarily lead to the types of issues that some might imagine. In this way, the movie leaves us with a picture of a climate that is sensitive and unpredictable, with the greatest point of certainty being that if we take it for granted and continue to use it as a dumping ground for our industrial and personal effluent, something will give. This is part of the concern that drives scientists, activists and others in the push for rapid and drastic action to curb the impacts of human-caused climate change. But even though this is vitally important, it's hard to make sense of the complex nexus between people, technology and climate without first recognising how fragile our relationship with the dynamic planet we live on has always been. On December the 26th, 2004, a magnitude 9 earthquake struck off the coast of Sumatra. It was one of the largest earthquakes ever recorded, and the shockwave reverberated around the world, triggering other smaller quakes as they went. But the most devastating result was a series of tsunami unleashed in the Indian Ocean. These swamped coastal areas in Indonesia, Sri Lanka, Thailand, India and many other countries. As the sea swept through towns, villages and cities, over 250,000 people lost their lives. It was one of the worst natural disasters in recent memory. The 2005 Indian Ocean tsunami is a sobering reminder of just how precarious a place planet Earth is, even before we begin thinking about the impacts of technology and human-driven climate change. We live on a dynamic and unpredictable planet, and throughout human history, natural events have devastated communities. This is not to diminish the almost unthinkable consequences of global warming if we don't put the brakes on our unfettered use and abuse of natural resources, but it is an important reminder that long-term environmental sustainability and security are often illusions that are born from our ability to convince ourselves that because yesterday was a good day, tomorrow and the next will be just the same. This is a blind spot that we all have to the dangers of sudden catastrophic risk, whether we're looking at climate change or the impacts of emerging technologies. Just how deeply rooted this is in our collective behaviour was brought home to me several years ago on a family vacation to the Pacific Northwest. Travelling with my wife, my parents and our then young kids, we started at Mount Hood in Oregon and worked our way north to Seattle and Mount Rainier via Mount St. Helens. These and other volcanoes in the Cascade Range are all relatively inactive at the moment, but in 1980 the world was reminded of just how much power lurks under the range as Mount St. Helens erupted, throwing more than half a cubic mile of material into the atmosphere and leaving a crater over a mile wide. The May 18, 1980 eruption was the most violent in the Cascade Range since the region was populated by settlers migrating from the east. Apart from low-level volcanic activity around some of the peaks, there hasn't been anything quite like it for over a thousand years. Yet despite this relative calm, the Cascade volcanoes are far from safe. Fifty miles outside the city of Seattle stands Mount Rainier, perhaps one of the most iconic of the Cascades. Mount Rainier is a magnet for hikers, skiers and day-trippers. Something like 20 million people a year visit the mountain, and its striking profile is as much a part of Seattle as the Space Needle and Pike Place Market. Rainier stands guard over a metropolitan area accounting for some 3.7 million people. And yet... 
it's classified by the US Geological Survey as one of the most dangerous volcanoes in the country, and one where a major eruption could be devastating. Seattle was founded in 1851, well after Mount Rainier's last period of major volcanic activity, which occurred around about 500 years ago. Because of this lag between the cycle of volcanic activity and large-scale urban expansion, there is little if any cultural or historic memory amongst most of Seattle's current inhabitants of how unpredictable the environment they live in is. I suspect that most people living around the city think of it as a safe place to be, simply because it's been safe for as long as anyone can remember. My daughter now lives in Seattle, and just in case I was missing something, I asked her what it's like living next to a volcano that could wipe out the city if it got particularly belligerent. She's been living and working there for over four years now, and her response is best summarised as meh, supporting my suspicion that to many people living in the area, a risk not experienced is a risk not worth worrying about. However, she did add, so... How do you feel about your only daughter living in the shadow of one of the country's most dangerous volcanoes? Which made me realise that she's not the only one with a rather complacent perspective here. How easily we convince ourselves that this dynamic, dangerous planet we're living on is going to stay the same from day to day. Despite our relatively optimistic short-term view of the Earth's enduring stability, Mount Rainier has had a habit of awakening from its slumber every 500 years or so. And given the timing of the last eruption, we're overdue for some action here. Maybe nothing as dramatic as the 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption, but probably nothing that people used to enjoying this seemingly passive slumbering giant will take kindly to. Mount Rainier and the 2004 Indian Ocean Tsunami are just two reminders of how complacent we become when the environment we live in appears to be stable, and how quickly we sink into denial about how precarious life is on this outer skin of our dynamic planet. Yet the reality is that we live in an environment that can turn dangerous on a dime. In 2008, CBC News published a list of some of the most devastating natural disasters that have occurred since 1900. It's an admittedly subjective list as the line between natural and human-created disaster gets increasingly blurred when it comes to floods and famines. This aside, the list makes for sobering reading. Tallying the numbers, something like 8 million deaths have been associated with earthquakes, tsunamis, eruptions, hurricanes, cyclones and floods over the past 100 years or so. Adding in pandemics and famines, the number rises to well over 200 million people who have lost their lives as a direct result of the environment we live in. What makes these numbers even more devastating is that, apart from malaria, which is estimated to kill a million people a year, most of these deaths are caused by intense events that punctuate periods of relative calm. What these figures bring home, and they're only the tip of the iceberg of environmental-related deaths, is that we live in a dangerous world. Many people live perilously close to potential circumstances that could rob them of their livelihoods, their communities, and their lives. Collectively, we live in a fragile state of being, despite everything we do to convince ourselves that we're okay. Yet this very fragility is integral to life on Earth. It's the very changeability of the world we live in that has led, through evolution and natural selection, to an incredible diversity of species, including humans. A changing environment forces adaptation. It weeds out the poorly adapted and creates new opportunities for evolving organisms to take hold and thrive in new niches. Change is a force of nature that has led to where we are now, yet it's one that we mess with at our peril. Over time, the complex relationship between the Earth's changing climate and the forces of evolution has led to a deep symbiosis between how living organisms impact the Earth and how this, in turn, impacts them. Amazingly, over geological timescales, life has crafted the Earth we live on as much as Earth has moulded the life it harbours. This symbiosis formed the basis of the Gaia hypothesis developed by scientists James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis in the 1970s. And while a lot of pseudoscientific mythology has since grown up around the idea of planet Earth being a living organism, 
There are deep evidence-based reasons to approach the Earth as a complex system of organic and inorganic matter that together are responsible for a shifting and evolving environment. If we were an alien race observing the Earth from some distant solar system, we'd see a planet where the atmosphere, the oceans, the land and the organisms that are a part of them are constantly changing and shifting. We'd see a rolling history of different species rising to dominance, then fading as others arose that were better fitted for a changing world. We'd see humans as the latest manifestation of this deep relationship with the planet and the life in and on it. And we'd probably assume that this species would also be superseded at some point, not necessarily by a more intelligent one, but by one that was simply better adapted for thriving in a post-human world. With the clarity that comes from time and distance, we'd recognise that humans are just one small cog in a much larger planetary-scale machine, albeit a cog that has an outsized opinion of itself. In recent years, a quite compelling analogy for this deep interconnection between the environment and the organisms that are a part of it has come out of the field of microbiology. For decades now, scientists have realised that our bodies contain trillions of microbes. In fact, a popular myth has arisen that our microbes outnumber our human cells 10 to 1, meaning that despite any beliefs to the contrary, each of us is more non-human than we are human. This number doesn't actually hold up to scientific scrutiny, as how much of us is made up of microbes varies quite considerably. But that's not the interesting part of this story. What is, and the piece that's shaking up our understanding of our biology, is that we are each deeply interdependent on the microbes that live on and in us. So much so that there's emerging evidence that our gut microbes can actually influence how we think and feel. This is where a useful analogy can begin to be drawn between the human microbiome and planet Earth. Not so long ago, we thought of ourselves as complete and independent entities with minds and wills of our own. But we're now beginning to learn that what we think of as me is a complex collection of non-human microbes and human cells that together make up a living, thinking organism. We are, in fact, a product of our microbes and they of us. In the same way, we're beginning to understand just how symbiotic the Earth's organisms are to the planet. Just as our microbiome is an integral part of who we are, we're discovering that we cannot separate the physical Earth, its rocks, soils, oceans, rivers, even its atmosphere, from the flora and fauna that inhabit it, including humans. This perspective radically changes how we think of ourselves and our actions in relation to the planet. Through it, we can no longer assume that the environment is something to be utilised or even something to be looked after, as both assume we are somehow separate from it. Rather, it's increasingly clear that we are both a product of our environment and deeply enmeshed in its future. In other words, what we do has a profound impact on how the world changes and how this, in turn, will change us. This interdependence between us and the environment we live in has accelerated substantially over the past two centuries. A few thousand years and more ago, humans were something of a bit player as far as planetary dynamics went. We were insignificant enough that we could live our lives without bringing about too much change. Although, with hindsight, it's possible to see how early environmental abuse set us on the pathway towards local flooding, famines and the formation of deserts. Yet over the past 200 years, there's been a dramatic change. Global population has risen to the point where the environment can no longer absorb our presence and our effluent without being substantially altered by it. Human profligacy is now a major factor in determining how we impact the environment, as we saw in Chapter 11 in Inferno. But there's another equally important trend that is radically changing our relationship with planet Earth, and that is the increasing impacts of technology innovation. Around 200 years ago, we saw the beginnings of massive and widespread automation and acceleration in fossil fuel use and transformations in how we use agricultural land. The resulting industrial revolution changed 
everything about our relationship with the planet. Almost overnight, we went from a relatively minor species in geological terms to having a profound impact on the world we live on. This trend continues to this day, and we're now entering a phase of technological innovation where how we live and what we do is more deeply coupled than ever to the evolution of planet Earth. But there's a problem here. Going back to the microbiome analogy, we, along with all other forms of life, are part of a deep and complex cycle of planetary change. Yet because of our growing technological abilities and our evolutionary drive to succeed, we are now forcing the world to change faster and in different ways than ever before, and we have no idea what the consequences of this are going to be. What we do know is that there will be consequences. We know that the Earth changes and adapts in response to the organisms that live on and in it. We understand that planet Earth is a deeply complex system where the results of seemingly small changes can be unpredictable and profound, going back to Chapter 2 and Chaos Theory. We recognise that in such systems, the harder you hit them, the more unpredictably they respond. And we realise that complex systems like the Earth are prone to undergoing radical and disruptive transitions when pushed too hard. This is all part of living in the Anthropocene, a term that's increasingly being used to describe this period in the Earth's history where, largely through our technological innovations, humans have the power to dramatically influence the course of planetary evolution. The trouble is, while we have this growing ability to impact a whole planet, it's by no means certain that we know what we're doing, or that we understand how to chart a path forward through the ways in which our planetary influence will in turn impact us. Here, the day after tomorrow stands as something of a warning against human hubris and the fragility of our relationship with the natural world. Over the top as it is, the film reminds us that we're messing with things we don't understand, and that if we're not careful, there will be a reckoning for our environmental irresponsibility. Perhaps not surprisingly, in true Hollywood style, it's all a little clumsy. But it's hard to avoid the message that we live on a dangerous planet that has the power to seriously disrupt our 21st century lifestyles, and that we prod and poke it at our peril. But the movie also has a message of hope, albeit one that's very human-centric. It suggests that, ultimately, humans are resilient, and even when we suffer catastrophic losses, we have the ability to collectively pick ourselves up and come back stronger and wiser than before. Here, The Day After Tomorrow is surprisingly optimistic about the future. But this optimism does depend on us working together to develop the resiliency that's necessary to survive and thrive on a dynamic planet. Emerging technologies have a vital role to play here, together with social, economic and political innovations. This is where renewable energy technologies are finally beginning to compete with fossil fuels, where distributed energy networks and battery technologies are transforming how we generate, distribute and use electricity, where water treatment and agricultural technologies are enabling us to achieve more with less, and where we're learning to not only ensure products are recyclable, but to develop a circular economy where everything is reused. And this is just the tip of the sustainable technologies iceberg. Yet, if these and other technologies are to be used to build a resilient future, we first need to understand what we mean by resiliency in the first place. On September the 6th, 2017, Hurricane Irma devastated the Caribbean island of Barbuda. For the first time in 300 years, the island was left uninhabited, apart from the dogs and the other animals left behind by a fleeing population. Irma was just one of a string of powerful hurricanes sweeping through the Caribbean and across the southern state of the US in 2017 in one of the most destructive hurricane seasons on record. And as one storm after the next battered communities, it challenged them to think about what it means to be resilient in the face of such devastation. Resiliency, I have to admit, is a bit of a buzzword these days. In the environmental context, it's often used to describe how readily an ecosystem is able to resist harm or cover from damage caused by some event. But resiliency goes far beyond resistance to change. 
In its broader sense, it gets to the heart of how we think about what's important to us and how we make provisions to protect and grow this in spite of events that threaten to cause harm. Long before I became involved with environmental sustainability, I was used to the idea of resilience that's commonly used in material science. Here, resilience is a measure of how much energy a material can absorb and still have the ability to return to its previous state when the energy is released. Imagine, for instance, a rubber band. If it's stretched and as long as it doesn't break and it's not old and weathered, it'll return to its original shape once released. In this way, it's resilient to change. But push it too far and it'll snap. There's a limit to how resilient it is. This idea of resiliency as an ability to return to normalcy in the face of stress is how it's often used to describe ecosystems. Resilient ecosystems are frequently seen as those that resist permanent damage and that recover fast if they're harmed. But in a world where change is the driving force behind pretty much everything, this turns out to be a rather limited concept. Despite change and adaptation being the bedrock of our planet's biological and geological evolution, ideas of environmental resiliency seem too easily to slip into a mode of thinking that suggests change is bad and should be resisted. This is understandable if we believe that we should be preserving how things are or some ideal of how they should be. But it's important to ask what we're trying to preserve here. Is it the global environment as it now stands? Is it how we as humans are currently living? Is it the continuation of life in some form? Or is it the continuation of some future version of humanity? In reality, how we think about resiliency depends entirely on what we're trying to protect and preserve. And this, it turns out, is deeply dependent on context, to the extent that ideas that look like resilient approaches from one perspective may look highly precarious from another. In effect, our understanding of resilience depends on what's important to us. And in this context, resilience is not necessarily about maintaining the status quo, but about protecting and preserving what is considered to be of value. This may be the environment or our health and well-being, but it may just as equally be someone's ability to make a living or their deeply held beliefs or even their sense of self-identity and worth. From this perspective, we can begin to think of resiliency as something we use to protect many different types of value within society or to ensure that this value can be regained if it's temporarily damaged. Thinking about resiliency in this way ends up with it being less about maintaining what we currently have and more about ensuring future outcomes that we value. It also helps illuminate the complex landscape around issues like climate change where different and sometimes hidden values may be threatened. And with this reframing, we have a concept that is, in itself, adaptable to a changing world. It's a way of thinking about resiliency that moves our focus from maintaining our environment as we think it should be to considering where we want to be, even as the environment around us changes. This begins to get close to a perspective on resilience proposed by Tom Seeger and colleagues back in 2013. Thinking specifically about engineered systems, they explored the idea of resilience as being about what a system does rather than what it is. In the language of value, this translates to resilience being about developing systems that preserve what we consider to be valuable rather than simply describing the system itself. It's all about getting to where we want to be rather than simply trying to stay in the same place. This broader understanding of resilience is described rather well by David Woods in a 2015 paper and expanded on later by Seeger and others. Woods describes four types of resilience. First, there's rebound, or the ability for a system to return to its healthy state after being damaged. This is pretty close to the standard understanding of ecological resilience. Then there's robustness, or the ability to withstand knocks and shocks without failing. Things get interesting, though, with the third type of resilience, graceful extensibility. Wood's notion of graceful extensibility recognises that no matter how prepared you are, there will always be surprises, and it's always good to be able to adapt to them. It's a bit like the blade of grass bending but not being swept away by the hurricane, while stronger but less resilient trees are uprooted. 
Wood's final type of resiliency is sustained adaptability, or a willingness to change and sacrifice some aspects of what already exists in order to maintain others. Again, this begins to frame the idea of resiliency as less about maintaining the status quo and more about adapting to change while preserving what's important. These four types of resiliency still have the feel of trying to maintain things as they are, but they do acknowledge that some willingness to change and adapt and have some degree of flexibility is necessary. I'd go further, though, and argue that because we live in a world where change is the lifeblood of everything, we need to understand how to live with change. This includes the surprises, failures, and changes that make life tough, but it also includes changes that make life easier, if we can just see how to take advantage of them. What's important here is not trying to maintain what we have or what we believe we should have simply because we have it, but protecting what we think is truly important. Not surprisingly, the list of what we collectively think is important is a long and often conflicting one. But building resiliency to protect and preserve what we can agree should be protected and preserved in a changing world makes a lot of sense, and this brings us back to the day after tomorrow. On one level, the day after tomorrow can be viewed as a movie about the dangers of not building resilient systems. In the movie, political decision-making lacks the resiliency to prevent human-driven climate change, and infrastructure systems lack the resiliency to withstand the impacts of extreme storms. What we see is a brittle world collapsing under the consequences of ill-considered decisions. And yet, for all the dramatic and catastrophic change in the movie, People, relationships, and nations survive. Not only do they survive, they grow and adapt, and ultimately they show deep resiliency in the face of potential catastrophe. This, though, is a matter of framing. Certainly, the developed world and its institutions and infrastructures are shattered by the catastrophic shift in global climate. But in the movie's narrative, what is important to the central characters, including love, commitment, friendship, and selflessness, are resilient in the face of the onslaught. And because of this, despite the on-screen destruction, this is a movie about hope for the future, a hope that's based on the resiliency of the human spirit. That said, this is very much a privileged Western perspective. Despite the shock we feel at seeing whole communities decimated in the movie, this is sadly not an unusual state of affairs as you look around the world. Beyond the confines of a Western middle-class existence, suffering and catastrophe are commonplace, whether through war, famine, disease, poverty, climate, or a whole host of other factors. And this is perhaps one of the more sobering takeaways from the movie, that while we might talk about the need for resiliency in the face of climate change, communities around the world are exhibiting resiliency now, every day, as they struggle to survive and find meaning in a fickle world. For many of these communities, resiliency is not about holding on to what they have, but about not letting go of who they are. Yet in many cases, this is a necessity rather than a virtue, and one that should probably not be praised where it shouldn't be needed. And this brings us to a final way of thinking about resiliency. Resiliency should not be about survival or about holding on to life with our fingernails. Rather, it should be about having the ability to thrive in a changing world. Yet, to achieve this, we need to be proactive. We need to have foresight and to act with intention if we want to create the future we desire, in spite of what the dynamic and dangerous world we live in throws at us. This means taking responsibility for changes that we can control, such as reducing the chances of catastrophic climate change that's driven by our own irresponsible actions. But it could just as easily mean using technology to intentionally modify the Earth's climate. And this brings us to an idea that isn't explicitly addressed in The Day After Tomorrow, but is deeply embedded in how we think about resiliency, climate and the future. Geoengineering.
In 2006, University of Arizona astronomer Roger Angel suggested a rather radical solution to global warming. His idea was to launch a trillion-dollar light diffuser into space to deflect some of the sun's rays from the Earth. The proposal was published in the prestigious journal The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and at the time it caught the imagination of a number of us who were intrigued by such an audacious approach to planetary engineering. Angel proposed to send billions of small transparent flyers into space to create a cloud at the Lagrange point between the Sun and the Earth, that point where the gravitational pull of each body just balances out, allowing the flyers to seemingly hover effortlessly between the two. These would deflect just enough sunlight from hitting the Earth that the cloud would act as a massive solar shade, countering the effects of greenhouse gas-driven global warming. Angel's idea was part of a growing interest in using planetary-scale engineering to manage the effects of human-caused climate change. Commonly called geoengineering, it's an approach to controlling the Earth's climate that, to some at least, has become increasingly relevant as efforts to curb carbon dioxide emissions have run into rough water. Yet despite the urgency with which we need to get a grip on our collective environmental impacts, Geoengineering represents technologies and ideologies that are fraught with challenges. I first started writing about geoengineering back in 2009. At the time, I was fascinated by the audacity of the ideas being discussed, most of which I must confess were more mundane than throwing billions of sunshades into space. But I was also intrigued by the ethical and social issues they raised. I'd been following the technology before this, but what sparked my interest in 2009 was the controversy around a particular experiment planned to take place in the Southern Ocean. The experiment was given the admittedly not-so-catchy name Lohafix, and it was designed to see if algal blooms could be used to remove carbon dioxide from the air. The plan was to release six tons of dissolved iron over 300 square miles of ocean in an attempt to feed and stimulate an algal bloom which would remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere before sinking to the bottom of the ocean. But even before the research started, it drew criticism from environmental groups. As one of the largest geoengineering trials to date at the time, they were concerned that it represented unnecessary and even unethical direct experimentation on the only environment we have. Despite the low chances of Lohafex having any lasting impact, these concerns put the study on hold until the funders were certain that the risks were minimal. As it turned out, the experiment, when it eventually took place, showed that ocean fertilisation with iron had a small and unpredictable impact on atmospheric carbon dioxide. This was a useful finding as it indicated the limitations of this one potential approach to carbon dioxide removal, but it also demonstrated what a contentious issue geoengineering was at the time. Even today, the ethics and responsibility of geoengineering are hotly contested. On one hand, this isn't surprising. We only have one environment to experiment with, and so we can't afford too many whoops moments. There's no convenient drawing board to go back to when global experiment A goes wrong. But in addition to the albeit low in most cases risks, there's another concern that dogs geoengineering, and that's the underlying ideology. If you believe that the root problem with the world today is human behaviour, then one of your primary solutions to global warming is likely to be trying to change how people behave. This may involve reducing dependency on fossil fuels or encouraging people to lead more energy-efficient or less energy-greedy lifestyles. Or it may mean helping individuals and organisations develop environmentally healthy practices. In contrast, anything that gives what you think are humanity's bad habits a free pass is, by default, not good news. The reckless extraction and use of fossil fuels, for instance, or profligate energy usage. Geoengineering does not fit comfortably within this ideology. It smacks too much of developing technological fixes to reverse the consequences of bad behaviour rather than fixing the behaviour that led to the problems in the first place. Unfortunately, to many people, and I would count myself here, we don't have the luxury of sacrificing people's lives and the environment we live in on the altar of ideology. 
Without question, we're caught up in a cycle of collective and individual behaviour where we readily and wrongly pollute the commons of the atmosphere for short-term gain. It would be lovely, of course, to think that people could learn to be more responsible than this, but individuals are complex and society as a whole is more complex still. We all have our own values and things that are important to us that we're striving for. And in some cases, for good or bad, these don't align with the common good of maintaining the Earth's environment in its current or past state. Factors like putting food on the table and a roof over our family's head come into play, or getting out of poverty, reducing inequities, closing economic disparities, and striving for the same living conditions as others. Individuals and nations are constantly juggling a plethora of issues that are important, and while the environment is one of them, it isn't always the most important. Yet despite this complex mess of conflicting priorities, aims and desires, the cold hard truth is that our actions are already forcing the global climate to change. And as they do, we have a choice to make, live with the consequences or do something about it. To some in the geoengineering community, the only way to do something about it is to stop waiting for people to do the right thing and to start to engineer the heck out of the problem. And this, as it turns out, isn't as hard as you might imagine. Here, geoengineers have two basic options. Reduce the amount of sunlight hitting and being absorbed by the Earth's atmosphere, or actively reduce the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide in particular. In technical terms, these are often lumped into one of two categories, solar radiation management, or SRM, and carbon dioxide removal, or CDR. Although it must be said that to the enterprising geoengineer, there are ways of engineering the Earth's environment that don't necessarily fit conveniently into either of these buckets. Roger Angel's solar shade spaceships aside, many of these techniques aren't exactly rocket science. For instance, planting lots of trees is a form of CDR as they suck up and store carbon dioxide in their wood, although it's not the most effective form of CDR. Lohafex was another form of CDR, as are technologies that actively remove carbon dioxide from power plant emissions, or artificial trees and other technologies that convert carbon dioxide either into plastics and fuels that can be reused, or into materials that can be buried in the ground. Many of the approaches being considered for SRM are equally straightforward. Painting roofs white, for instance, to reflect sunlight, or spraying sunlight-reflecting particles into the stratosphere. This last technique borrows a trick from volcanoes, which can actually cool the Earth's atmosphere when they spew millions of tons of sulfate particles into the stratosphere. And it's not that expensive. A country like India, for instance, could probably finance a global stratospheric aerosol SRM program designed to improve local crop yields. The problem is, of course, that such unilateral action would most likely make a lot of other countries rather angry. All this is rather hypothetical, though, as to date there's not been sufficient research to get a good sense of what might work and what might not with geoengineering technologies, and what the unintended consequences might be and how to avoid them. As a result, the geoengineering elite of the world are caught in a seemingly never-ending argument around should they, shouldn't they. And what limited research on possible approaches has been proposed has run into barriers, much as the Lohafex project did. People who are professionally concerned about these things are reticent to sanction experiments designed to help develop effective geoengineering approaches, either because they're worried about the consequences or because they see this as an ideological slippery slope. And yet, something has to give here. To use an analogy from health, it's like a physician being faced with a patient needing heart bypass surgery because they've overindulged and under-exercised, but refusing treatment because it may encourage others to similarly adopt unhealthy lifestyles. In the medical case, the solution is a yes and one. Treat the patient and simultaneously work to change behaviour. And it's the same with the environment. Yes, we've made a mess of things. And yes, we need to change our behaviour. But also, yes, we need to use every tool we have to make sure the resulting impacts are as benign as we can make them. And this brings us back to resiliency and the challenges of living on a dynamic planet.
Unless drastic action is taken to forcibly reduce the human footprint on planet Earth, we need to be able to protect and nurture what is important to humanity. And that means developing the ability to protect lives and livelihoods, to protect dignity and freedom, to protect what people care about the most. This will take social and political change together with global cooperation, but it will also take using our technical and engineering prowess to the best of our ability. And importantly, it'll depend on combining research and experimentation with social awareness to develop ways of engineering the climate that are socially responsible as well as socially and politically sanctioned. This probably won't end up including high-concept ideas like Roger Angel's solar diffusers. And to be fair, Angel saw his thought experiment as an extreme solution to an emerging extreme problem. Emphasising this, the paper concludes, and I quote, It would make no sense to plan on building and replenishing ever larger space sunshades to counter continuing and increasing use of fossil fuel. The same massive level of technology innovation and financial investment needed for the sunshade could, if also applied to renewable energy, surely yield better and permanent solutions. Rather, we need feasible and tested engineering approaches that can be used carefully and responsibly, and with the agreement of everyone potentially impacted by them. And they need to be part of a range of options that are pursued to manage both our impacts on the world we live on and the challenges of living on what is, at the end of the day, a capricious planet. How we respond to this challenge and to the ongoing challenges of climate change more broadly depends to a large extent on how we think about the world we live in and the future we're building. And this raises an issue that threads through this chapter. Irrespective of how deep our science is or how powerful and complex our technologies are, we cannot hope to build a better, more resilient future through science and technology if we don't understand our relationship with them in the first place. And this leads to our final movie, Carl Sagan's Contact. Moviegoer's Guide to the Future is based on the book Films from the Future, The Technology and Morality of Sci-Fi Movies and is read by the author Andrew Maynard.